I'm Talmadge Boston, and welcome to this edition of Cross-Examining History, where we explore American history and thought leadership through conversations with public figures and best-selling authors. Today, I'm interviewing former Secretary of State James Baker, who served under President George H.W. Bush and before that served as White House Chief of Staff and Secretary of the Treasury under President Ronald Reagan. Secretary Baker is one of our nation's leading post-war political leaders. And in this conversation, he reflected on his relationships with top national and international luminaries during his storied career. We did the interview in front of a large audience in Dallas on April 12, 2022. Enjoy. Thank you very much, Thomas, and thank you, ladies and gentlemen. It's a real pleasure for this Houstonian to be up here in Dallas. It doesn't happen often. <laughs> I mean that it's a pleasure. But, but, but I'm delighted to be here. I'm really delighted to support the good cause that all of you are supporting minority scholarships uh, for law students in North Texas Law School. So it's a pleasure to be here. Go ahead. Okay. Now, Secretary Baker, your grandfather told you at a young age to work hard, study, and stay out of politics. And for many years, you followed his advice. But shortly after your first wife, Mary Stewart, passed away with cancer, George H.W. Bush coaxed you into ignoring your grandfather's advice, and he got you involved in politics in 1970, helping running his campaign for U.S. Senator from Texas. So what did he say that made you disregard what your grandfather had been saying to you for years? He was a very close friend, of course, for 60 years. Back in those days, we were quite close. Uh, we were tennis doubles partners. And he came to me after Mary Stewart died. Well, first of all, he asked me when he decided to run for the Senate in 70, if I would run for his congressional seat in Houston. I couldn't because my wife was ill with terminal breast cancer. And he came to me after she died, and, and he said, you know, Bake, he said, you gotta take your mind off your grief, and you gotta get involved in something uh, that will do that, and how about helping me run for the Senate here in Texas? I said, well, George, I said, that's a great idea, except for two things. Number one, I don't know anything about politics, because I had stayed out of politics. And number two, I'm a Democrat. <laughs> so, so he said, well, he said, we can fix that latter problem. <laughs> and we did. And when I'm talking to a group uh, of Republicans, I say, I got religion. <laughs> but when I'm talking to a mixed group, I said, I changed parties. So you can take it either way, either way you want. But I did and I helped him run for the Senate. We lost a close race to a really fine uh, U.S. Senator named Lloyd Benson. George and Lloyd were both from Houston. And I take great, George asked me to run his, to be his Harris County chairman. And I take great pride in the fact that we won Harris County, both, both of them living there. 
But uh, that sort of set me off. And uh, I remember working. The next thing that came along was after we lost that race, uh, uh, they asked me to be finance chairman for the Republican Party of Texas. Now, remember, this was in 1970 when being a Republican in Texas was a hanging offense. <laughs> and uh, I mean, Texas was a Democratic then as it is Republican now. Uh, and furthermore, uh, John Tower and Richard Nixon were running for re-election. But I took on the job nevertheless, raised a little bit of money. Raising party money is always hard, but that was really hard. And, uh, and that started me off and then one thing led to another, and I found myself a couple of years later up, up in Washington as the Deputy Secretary of Commerce working for President Ford. Mm -hmm. Now, the format tonight, we're going to talk about Secretary Baker's impressions of some of the leading American leaders as well as world leaders and kind of his reflections on the experiences he had. We're going to start with Reagan. Now, I assume that growing up, Secretary Baker, you had an awareness of Ronald Reagan. You saw him in the movies. You saw him on the television. He never won an Academy Award or was even close. Most people regard him as kind of a B-level actor. So what were the circumstances when you said to yourself, you know what, that guy could be a top political leader? What, what caused you to realize that there was a whole lot more to Reagan than just being a B-level actor? <laughs> well, well, I never went to see Bedtime for Bonzo. <laughs> Reagan, you know, for the nomination in 1976, Reagan was governor of California, and he uh, uh, ran for president in 76 against Jerry Ford. I had gone up to Washington as deputy secretary of commerce, as I said. One thing led to another, and a few months later, I found myself uh, being the chief delegate hunter for, Ray for Ford, in the, in the last contested uh, con convention of either major political party, 1976 in Kansas City, Missouri. And uh, we, the Ford forces, beat Reagan barely by, I think, less than 100 votes, 100 delegate votes out of some 3,500 who were on the floor. And so... Uh, <laughs> That gave me a pretty good idea that he might be a formidable political figure when he almost knocked off an incumbent president. Uh, but I guess when I really, really realized it was after I started working for him. Uh, he asked me after the, after the election in 1980, the general election, in which he beat Carter, and in which my pal George Bush was elected vice president. Uh, President-elect Reagan came to me and said, Jim, before you go home, this was at the Victory Party at the Century Plaza Hotel in Los Angeles, said, before you go home, I want to talk to you. And when I told my wife that, that night she started crying. <laughs> I think she knew what was coming. I didn't think it was that bad. 
better? Better back there? Better. So, so she started crying. And Reagan, uh, the next morning, he said, Jim, I want you to be my White House chief of staff. Well, you could have picked me up off the floor with a blotter. I mean, that was the last thing in the world, really, that I had any reason to expect since I had run two campaigns against Reagan. We, <laughs> we beat him in one, and we, we lost to him in the other. But that, I think, gives you a reasonably good picture of what a broad-gauge person Ronald Reagan was. Uh, and I don't think, frankly, that it will ever happen again in American politics that uh, an elect, that a president-elect would go to uh, the campaign chairman for his closest rival and ask him to be his chief of staff. So that's when I really knew or really realized that, th that he was not the ideologue that a lot of people said he was. He was not the right-wing nut that uh, a lot of people were saying was. And then when I went in there and served at his right hand, not for four years, but for eight, because after I was chief of staff for four years, I was secretary of treasury for four, I realized that he was a very pragmatic person. He was a pragmatic president. And, and I think that's one of the reasons he seemed to have been, to have been such a successful president. He, he, he knew that we judge our presidents on the basis of what they get accomplished. And so he was always, he always wanted to make, it, to, to make something happen, to get something done. He wanted to do the people's business. He must have told me 20 or 30 times when we would have something going on up on Capitol Hill that required us to give a little here or there. He used to say to me, Jim, I'd much rather get 80% uh, of what I want than go over the cliff with my flag flying. It was very pragmatic. Well, of course, you were a big part of, the, of his success. For those of you who haven't read it yet, I encourage you to read The Man Who Ran Washington, which was a top biography, came out two years ago. Also, pull up on PBS the documentary on Secretary Baker, The Man Who Made Washington Work. So. I'm assuming that was a real pleasant surprise that the presidents you're working for had the same appreciation for the importance of principled pragmatism that you did in getting things done. Yes, indeed. But that's where he was. That's where he came from. And that's what he believed in. And you can, uh, I can give you uh, a number of examples, more than I can articulate here, mm -hmm. where he was willing to take less than what he first started out asking for in order to make sure he got something and didn't just go over the cliff with his flag flying. Mm -hmm. Now, after President Reagan's second term ended, of course, George Bush won the 1988 election, became our nation's 41st president, and he, he named you uh, to serve as Secretary of State. And you accomplish everything that Secretary Blinken said last week, uh, saying you were the most important unelected official in the U.S. government since World War II. But particularly in the area of foreign policy, President Bush had uh, unequal success over the course of his four years. So you were in the big middle of it. Talk about that teamwork led by President Bush and what made it work so seamlessly going through one major international event after another. 
Well, I think for anybody to be successful <clears throat> as Secretary of State, you have to have a seamless relationship with your president because both of those individuals uh, have, over, uh, to some extent, overlapping jurisdiction on the issue of foreign policy, foreign affairs, security policy. So that if there's any daylight between a president and a secretary of state, secretary of state's not going not to succeed. I had a perfect, I tell people I had a perfect situation. My president was a friend for 60 years. He was my daughter's godfather, and I ran all of his campaigns. Now, who's going to get between me and my president? <laughs> nobody, nobody. And when things weren't going the way I liked, I had the uh, ability to pick up the phone and say, hey, Heffy, I used to call him Heffy, which is, of course, Spanish for chief. I'd say, hey, Heffy, this ain't going right or this or that. And I could be very candid and very frank with him because we were close friends and we, and we trusted each other implicitly and there was never any daylight, never. Except when I couldn't get him to get out of the race in 1980 uh, to be in. He, I kept saying, George, if you want to be vice president, you can't go out there and run against Reagan in California. The numbers had already come in and they were against us. We'd, we'd lost the nomination. But I never will forget, he'd say, I'm not a quitter. I'm not a quitter. I'm not running for vice president. <laughs> we finally got him to do it. But that was the only time we ever had anything, I think, like that. And when I was Secretary of State, we never had any of it. And uh, he, was, he was an extraordinarily uh, wonderful friend for many years, of course. Loyal friend, warm friend considerate friend, but he was a super president, uh, in, and particularly in foreign policy. He knew foreign policy. He understood foreign policy. He knew how the national security apparatus of the United States was supposed to work, and he made sure that his worked that way. And you, don't, you didn't see, in those four years, you didn't see any backbiting, backstabbing, uh, or all of that in the national security apparatus like you have in other administrations. Mm -hmm. He saw, he knew how to structure it. He saw to it that it operated smoothly. Yep. Not that we didn't have disagreements. We had plenty of disagreements between me, say, and the national security advisor, or me and Dick Cheney and defense. Defense and state always have sometimes a different perspective, and that's understandable. Mm -hmm. Now, winning the Cold War without firing a shot in the 1980s under Presidents Reagan and Bush may be the greatest triumph in the history of American diplomacy. And you were Reagan's White House Chief of Staff. You were Bush's Secretary of State. You obviously played a major role in that triumph. So why were Presidents Reagan and Bush, with you by their side, the right men at the right time to finally, after 45 years, in the Cold War? Well, uh, Reagan, when he first came into office, he went, up, went over to the old executive office building to hold his first press conference. 
And in the course of that press conference, he said the Soviet Union will lie, cheat, and steal to get anything they want. And all the State Department people went, tut, 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 tut. He didn't know what he, he's a, he's a cowboy, be careful. He was absolutely right, of course. So, but he was steadfast in opposing a Soviet expansionism. Just as, by the way, I think we need to say this, just as every American president, Democrat or Republican, from Harry Truman on, have been steadfast in opposing the spread of communism. Uh, and so you had that with Reagan, very strong. And then with George Bush, you had someone who understood the importance of not dancing on the ruins of the Berlin Wall. He got a lot of grief for that. The press wanted him, you need to show more emotion. Here you are, 40 years of the Cold War over, the wall is down, you've won. Why aren't you more emotional? Well, uh, George knew that we still had a lot of things we needed to do with Gorbachev and Shevardnadze, and he wasn't gonna stick it in their eye, notwithstanding the political flack that he caught for not doing so. He was a very, very knowledgeable uh, and, and uh, good foreign policy president. Mm -hmm. Now, while you were Secretary of State under President Bush, Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait in August 1990, which led to the Gulf War and Operation Desert Storm in early 1991. And you and President Bush succeeded in putting together an international coalition backed by the UN, also got Congress to support the effort. And then once the fighting started, in a space of 100 hours, we achieved our objective and expelled the Iraqi forces from Kuwait. So as you've said and others have said, it was a textbook perfect example of diplomacy to put together a coalition and the war machine to bring Saddam and Hussein and Iraq to their knees. So what were the most important elements in having that diplomacy, perfect diplomacy, jive with the perfect execution of the war machine? As you saw it from Secretary of State, why did it work so well, so flawlessly? Because we had a good leader in President Bush, and he knew, he knew what needed to be done. He, in fact, he said shortly after Saddam invaded Kuwait, he said, this, this will not stand, this aggression against Kuwait. Uh, so there was never any doubt in his mind that we were going to reverse it. Uh, and we, uh, we had a lot of toing and froing uh, on the way to get there, whether or not we would go to the UN, whether we would, you know, uh, uh, what we would do in certain circumstances. But President Bush understood uh, how foreign policy should be exercised and how security policy should be uh, performed, and, and he was just an outstanding leader. That's the reason that that, that worked so well, particularly uh, at the end there when Saddam invaded. And I have said, and I repeat many times, that this was indeed a textbook example of the way to fight a war. President Bush told the world what he was gonna do, he then went out there and got the world to support it in the form of a UN Security Council resolution authorizing force against a member state of the UN that happened to be an Arab 
state. He did exactly what he said he was going to do. Nothing more, nothing less. Brought the troops home, and then we got everybody else to pay for it. We didn't pay for that war. <laughs> and, that came, and, and let me tell you how that came about. I was the point man. I had to go up to the Congress and testify about what we were going to do. And there was very little enthusiasm. In fact, there was outright hostility to the idea because people forget that President Bush served his four years with, without, a Demo, without a Republican House or a Republican Senate. He had a completely Democratic Congress. And boy, they gave us hell. You're going to go to war? How, how, many, how many bodies is it going to be worth, Mr. Secretary? How much money are you going to spend that would, could better be spent on these social programs? So I went back to the White House. I said, George, we're going to have to find a way to, to counter that, or you've you got no chance of getting the Congress uh, on board to support it. So we did two things. We went to the UN Security Council, very controversial uh, matter at the time. Cheney was against it, Margaret Thatcher was against it, but, but it, it turned out all right. And, and, and then we, uh, I'm trying to remember what the second one was. Well, after you got the UN support, then it, then you're ready to go to Congress. Yeah, yeah. Well, then we went to Congress and barely got barely got the vote, but uh, we had to go. That's it. We had to go get uh, everybody to get the rest of the world behind us before we could get the American people through the Congress to to support it. And so it worked. It was it was a close run thing, but it worked. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, it, it worked quite well, as a matter of fact. President Bush was, was pulled and tugged in the debate about whether to go to the U.N. Uh, defense and the National Security uh, Advisor and uh, one of our close allies, uh, Margaret Thatcher, said, don't go to the U.N., you're not going to you get all wrapped around the axle, you won't get it, and it'll hurt your your effort, just go in there and do it. Well, President Bush thought that he ought to have some uh, patina of authority uh, for doing it. So we went to the UN and we got it done. It was hard. We had to get China to abstain. We had to get the Soviet Union, our Cold War opponent for 40 years, to support it. And we had to get, of course, the other members of the Security Council to vote for it. Now, we've, you've mentioned uh, Margaret Thatcher, the Iron Lady, who was certainly one of our most high-profile allies during the 12 years you served two principals. She had a very special relationship with President Reagan. You said they were like soulmates. She had a very different relationship with President Bush and with you. Uh, in fact, in her authorized biography, her criticism of you was that you were a fixer. Try and focus too much of better to better to fix it than not fix it. Yeah, so she said you focus too much of your time on pragmatic problem solving, and she thought George H. W. Bush lacked Reagan's conviction. I guess she thought he was wobbly. So give us your assessment of the chemistry or lack thereof between Lady Thatcher on one hand and you and President Bush on the other hand. <laughs> 
Well, you see, I had worked for Reagan for eight years, and I had seen uh, the degree and extent to which he and Margaret, they were really close, so much so that Reagan would let Margaret Thatcher speak for the United States. And when, we, when I became Secretary of State, George Bush became president, I thought it was really important that the alliance be led by the new president, by George Bush, the president of the United States. And so I didn't think it was appropriate to let uh, the prime minister of Great Britain speak for the United States. I never will forget uh, when we were talking about whether or not to go to the UN, she was very much against that. <laughs> and my pal, George Bush, my buddy, as she's coming in for the meeting, he said, now, Bake, we're going to be meeting with Margaret. I want you to make the case for going to the UN. <laughs> <laughs> and I did. And boy, she, she was very much against that. She said, it'll, it'll be, we'll get all, oh, you know, we won't get our resolution. It'll be, we'll end up worse than we uh, were when we started. But uh, she sat there in the wing chair. She was in the wing chair. Reagan was in the wing chair there before the fireplace in the Oval Office. And I never will forget her turning to George when she got exasperated because I wouldn't agree not to go to the security conference. She certainly said, hey, George, let's just go do it. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I said she had an uncanny ability to flex America's muscles. <laughs> let's just go do it. We had 500,000 Americans in the in the Gulf, they had maybe 25 or 50,000 Brits. So there were, there were some differences like that. But I need to tell you, she was a steadfast ally of ours for the entire time she served as prime minister. She was with us on 99% of the things, and she was an extraordinarily good prime minister of the United Kingdom. Okay. For our next major personality, when historians evaluate the most effective American Secretary of State since World War II, there's two people who are head and shoulders above everybody else, you and Henry Kissinger. Now, you and Dr. Kissinger obviously brought different perspectives to the job of Secretary of State. In Peter Baker's book, he said that Kissinger was, quote, a political strategist and grand architect of history who saw himself as a latter-day Metternich shaping the forces that guided the world, whereas they said you cared less than Henry Kissinger about historical context but sought to make diplomatic deals like a corporate lawyer, a problem solver animated by the challenge of finding ways to get things done. So there are two very different approaches to solving international problems. So I know you and Henry Kissinger got off to a rocky start at first, but at what point did you make peace and ultimately develop uh, a form of friendship? Well, I think that came uh, relatively quickly after the Ford administration was over. But I was Ford's uh, campaign chairman in the fight for the nomination against Reagan. And the Reagan forces were critical of the policy of detente. They thought it was too squishy, too soft, and not hard enough. And, uh, and they were very critical of this. <clears throat> But I was on the political side, and I understood what that, how they would appeal to the uh, 
Republican Party base at that time. And so we did. We were not as supportive of Henry, I don't think, as Henry thought or wanted us to be. Uh, I remember going to... <laughs> They, I, was, I was a lowly deputy secretary of commerce, so they sent me to Oklahoma one time to a fundraiser. And I'm sitting around a swimming pool with a bunch of people. There no press in attendance. And they said, uh, this is Oklahoma Republicans now. Will Dr. Kissinger be in a second Ford administration? And I said, well, I can't conceive of that happening. But there was a stringer for the Daily Oklahoman there, or the college newspaper there, and she printed it. And when I got back to the White House, <laughs> Dick Cheney, who was the 32-year-old White House chief of staff at the time, had sent his secretary out to get me out of an event in the Rose Garden, said, when, when you, before you go back to Commerce, stop by Dick, by Mr. Cheney's office. And I did, and Dick looked, looked at me, I knew him pretty well. We were friends. We fly fished together. He looked up at me with that crooked smile and said, I understand you announced Henry's resignation. <laughs> and I said, what are you talking about? I did not. He said, I got the wire copy right here. I thought, well, my, my federal my days in federal government are over. This is it. Because Henry was bigger than life. And... Uh, uh, but Dick said, no, don't worry about it. Go back and just go back and make it right with Henry. So I went back and got on the phone and groveled my apologies to the Secretary of State, who didn't accept them very. He just, he kept, on, kept a knee on my back the whole time. <laughs> but finally, we became friends. And today, I'm proud to say we were really close friends uh, as former Secretaries of State. Now, a key figure in our being able to win the Cold War was Soviet General Secretary and President Mikhail Gorbachev, who was strongly influenced by his foreign minister, Edward Shevardnadze, who was your counterpart as Secretary of State. Yeah. So what was it about Gorbachev and Shevardnadze that caused President Bush and you to believe you could trust them as opposed to their predecessor and you could actually move the needle with them while they were leaving? Well, well uh, for one thing, Margaret Thatcher uh, and Helmut Kohl, who was chancellor of the Federal Republic of Germany, both, had, both told us that they thought we could do business with Gorbachev. Uh, Reagan had, had done some business with Gorbachev. They never could make a deal to wreck it, but they'd done some... Uh, some good things together. And, uh, and so it was our view that, that perhaps we could. I think that Gorbachev and Foreign Minister Edward Shevardnadzin will, will be treated extraordinarily well by history because they're the first Soviet slash Russian leaders who refused to use force to keep the empire together. Now, isn't it? ironic that we sit here tonight, we have another leader, autocratic leader of Russia, trying to use force to put some of the empire back together. It's regrettable, very regrettable. I think people ought to remember, though, that for 15 years after the war came down, after the wall came down, we had good relationships with Russia under the uh, leadership of Yeltsin 
and Putin. Ten, ten years with Yeltsin and five years with Putin. So it wasn't until he got in domestic political trouble in Russia, in my view, that he, that he adopted this hard line toward the West and the United States. He needed a whipping boy, and we were the whipping boy, and here we are. And it's really regrettable. When you think about all that we got done, all of the big arms control agreements, the Chemical Weapons Convention, the START one, the START two treaties and all that, and now we're back, absolutely back in a Cold War with Russia. And not only that, we're in a Cold War with China at the same time. And, uh, and it, it, it's regrettable, but it's, it's the way it is. And we ought to be thinking about approaching these two Cold Wars the same way we approached the one, the first one. Mm -hmm. Now, we're going to close tonight with your thoughts on our two most recent presidents. First, Donald Trump. In uh, the Baker Glasser book, they open with you describing you as kind of wrestling in 2016. Can I really support Donald Trump for president? Uh, and obviously he got elected, uh, he had four years. Many people feel great about many of his policies, although I don't think many people feel great about his character. So how do you think uh, history is going to evaluate him and his presidency, Donald Trump? I, I, well, uh, I don't think very well. Uh, again, I, I'm one who, who agrees with some of his policies. I tell people I think we had the right message. We Republicans had the right message, but the wrong messenger. Uh, and that's the way I feel. Uh, he talked to me, you know, the book recounts our discussions of, about when he was, when he just had sold up the nomination, he was moving to the general election. Uh, but but he, he right now, is a problem for the Republican Party. But I, for one, am, I'm sort of an optimist. And I, uh, people say, isn't it terrible what's happened to our country? Things are, I, that's not my view. I think our founding fathers were really wise and they created uh, a country here with, with a governance system of governance that has checks and balances. And I've worked for four presidents now, and I know the limits uh, on what a president can get, can get done. Uh, and, and so even as autocratic uh, as he was, there were, quite, there were serious, significant limits on what he could get done. But I don't think, I mean, I still think some elements of the message were really good, some but the messenger was not someone that I could be proud of as a president. I think he appointed three very fine justices to the Supreme Court, uh, and that's one of his most, uh, from the standpoint of a conservative Republican, one of his most significant accomplishments. I don't know whether he's going to run again or not. You tell me. Anybody's guess. Now, Joe Biden got to Washington, D.C. in 1973, so he was basically there the whole time you were there. Give us your assessment 
of, of him during the time you knew him when he was a senator as well as uh, how you think he's doing he's as been, president? He's been down to my institute twice. I worked with him when he particularly when he was chairman of Senate Foreign Relations. I like him as a person. Uh, I worked uh, well with him back in those days. Uh, I'm very, very disappointed in the left, leftward drift of his administration. Uh, and I think that he's, he's got himself a peck of trouble right now because he violated uh, Economics 101, which says if you spend more than you bring in and you print money, just print money to cover it, inflation's going to start creeping in. And guess what? It's not transitory. We're here. It's big. This, and this cut... Inflation is an issue that really cuts politically, really cuts politically. So what's your evaluation of what America has done thus far in connection Ukraine, with the Ukraine? All right, all right I've just come from this uh, session with the Secretary of State, and I told him uh, what I'm going to tell you. I think they've done a pretty good job of walking the line between uh, helping Ukraine and not uh, contributing to a wider conflict. And thinking about the fact that they're dealing with an adversary that has more nuclear weapons than any country in the world, even in the United States. And I think they've done a reasonably good job. I think they've been slow. Uh, they, they've, they've followed, even followed the Europeans in some respects on providing some lethal uh, weaponry to, to Ukraine. They should have done a little more of that and, and more of it and more and more quickly. Um, but everybody's got to be extraordinarily proud of the performance of the Ukrainian people and, and their leader. I mean, they're not going to give up. And, And I'll tell you, there was a lot of people thinking that this thing might be over in three or four days. But you know, we've been training Ukrainian forces uh, for, for some time. So they know how to fight, and they've got the added incentive of fighting for their homeland. My last question comes from Margaret Spellings, and I've heard you do this before. <clears throat> Here you were, a very successful lawyer in Houston, and there came the call of public service. And you gave a substantial part of your career to that. We've got a lot of these wonderful, huge scholars in the audience tonight. A lot of, I'm happy to see so many young lawyers here with a bright future ahead of them. Give us your perspective on the importance of public service and why you're so glad you made that decision. Well, I think, I think as I told somebody earlier today, uh, it's tremendously rewarding to be able to give something back to the very finest country in the world. And uh, I'll tell you, uh, I went to 90 plus countries as Secretary of State, and I saw the, uh, the way they look at the United States and the awe in which they look, most of them, at the United States. Some of them resent us, but they, but they admire our strength. And I think being able to give something back to this country 
is a really, really rewarding experience. Whether it's in the military, whether it's in public service, whether it's politics, whatever it is, everybody ought to want to give something back uh, to, to Uncle Whiskers because when you think about it, think how good he's been to all of us. I mean, we got the finest, very finest country in the world. You fly to 90 plus other countries, you see how great this country is. And, uh, and public services, George used to say when we were campaigning, he had this speech, he'd say, my father inculcated in me uh, a love of public service. I said, George, don't say inculcated. I said, he, people think that's a venereal disease. So he got off of it after a while. What a beautiful human being. You know, nobody's been luckier than I am. I've had two wonderful, beautiful wives. I've had a friendship of 60 years with George H.W. Bush. I've worked for him. I've campaigned for him. I've done politics with him. I've done competitive sports with him. I've shot tiny birds with him. We've had, we've had a wonderful time together. And then I was privileged to also work for three other wonderful presidents, Jerry Ford, Ronald Reagan, and 43. And it was, a, how can you be so lucky? I mean, that is really lucky. Every one of those presidents, nobody, I mean, you don't find criticism uh, of their character or their personality. You have people who disagree with their policy positions. Okay, that's understandable. But they were all fine men of great character and integrity. Well, I'm going to speak for this entire crowd when you say, look, we are so lucky that somehow, someway, in large part, thanks to your great chief of staff, John Williams, you're able to be with us tonight. Shed your wisdom, tell your stories, and what a great honor and pleasure it's been. Thank you. James Baker is one of my heroes. No wonder current Secretary of State Anthony Blinken recently called him, quote, the most important unelected official in America since World War II, close quote. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Make sure and catch all my podcasts at Spotify, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Until next time, remember, as my late great friend Bobby Reagan used to say, you can't hit the ball with a bat on your shoulder. This is Talmadge Boston of the law firm Shackelford, Bowen, McKinley, and Norton. Thanks for listening.